I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next interview is with Professor Ajay Parasram. I can't tell you how much fun I think we both had. I certainly did. We, we, we talked about, uh, well, we kind of started talking about uh, activism, I suppose, and public engagement and what that actually means. And uh, Ajay is a professor at uh, University of Dalhousie. He's in the International De- uh, Development Department, but also in the History Department. He's assistant professor there, and, and, and he's worked on, I guess you could say, just worked on colonialism in its various forms. And he has a whole lot to say, and he says it in a, he says it in a fun and, 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 and just a, a really engaging matter. He's a, he's a perpetual student like myself, and so we really connected. We talked about uh, anti-oppressive frameworks. I know it sounds technical, but you really need to to dial in on this one. We talked about class and about what solidarity actually really means and how it's not not a noun but a verb and it's about building a classroom. We talk about privilege and and, and disposable income, race and racism get into our conversation and there's just and oh and the best part is we also talk about redemption songs so how cool is that. So join in and um, I think you're gonna gonna love uh, this interview and you're gonna fall you're gonna fall in love with a new professor from the University of Dalhousie. Don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my writing and and, and speaking and also face-to-facelive.ca for Uh, a whole slew of other interviews there. Check it out. And coming right up, Professor Ajay Parasram from the University of Dalhousie talking about a whole lot of things, including redemption songs. Well, welcome to Face to Face. Uh, We're joined by a, I I can't say an old friend, but I think (laughs) I can say a friend uh, from from the East Coast. Um, Professor Ajay Parasram is here with us today from the University of Dalhousie. He's a He's an uh, assistant professor there in the IDEA uh, International Department and History Department. 
and he's here today at the Hart House at the University of Toronto, and we found ourselves a room, and we're kind of hiding out, so hopefully we're not going to be interrupted. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. So can we lose the professor and the doctor? Please do. Is that okay? That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, your, do your students do that? Do you have that kind of a comfortable... Pretty. Oh, yeah, pretty much right away. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them prefer to be a bit more formal, but I try and drive it out of them pretty quick. Right. Oh, that's excellent. And does that, for the most part, work pretty well, would you oh, say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not too worried about that sort of breakdown of authority or... I'm not too worried about yeah, it, no. I yeah. think in some sense it's a bit easier because, uh, you know, presenting very masculine in the classroom, we don't have to face the same kind of gendered uh, assumptions that, uh, that our female colleagues have to face. So we can afford to be a bit less authoritarian. And from what, what I know about your background, which is not a great deal, but your, your thesis and some of the work that you've mm -hmm. done, it would be kind of antithetical to the work that you've been doing on colonialism, Absolutely. wouldn't it, in, in a sense? Yeah, these, these kind of rigid hierarchies yeah. uh, really are, uh, they really got to go. So. You got you to break down the barriers. Yeah, yeah, or just a it, little bit older students. That's right. <laughs> there, that's a great line. Yeah, it's, it's, would you call, so, that's what, so would you call yourself... Uh, a perpetual student? Oh, perpetual, yeah, all the time. I think anybody who sees themselves as anything anything other uh, is kind of deluding themselves, really, about about their vocation, at least in the academy. It, so, so the 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 professor, the tried and true, and I don't even know why that cliche exists, but the, right. the, that for me that means they see things only in one sort of particular way. Ah, this has always worked. You know, don't upset the apple cart. You know, how about there's another cliche, interesting. Mm. But, you know, do, just let me do my thing, essentially. Right, right. right? right. This has worked, and, and, and why, would we, why, would, why would we change things? Mm. That doesn't sound like your approach at all. And I saw you mm -hmm. do all of 20 minutes uh, in a <laughs> class not that long ago at Dal right. in the midst of what was going to be a huge snowstorm. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think I have a sense for your, 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 your approach. Your approach... Break, breaking down the barriers. Yeah, yeah. Not, People, not just metaphorically, but this is on, on a variety of levels. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in particularly in, in the class that uh, that you visited, uh, it was a course in, in activism, and I think it's particularly important to kind of model uh, horizontal mm. organizing strategies and anti-oppressive frameworks and stuff. If you're not practicing it in the classroom, you can't. It's not the kind of thing that you can simply study in a theoretical way and then uh, think through it. The class itself is so much about uh, practice, like thinking like we have to theorize, but we have to put it into practice. You know, we always nice. talk about in that class that, uh, you know, this principle of solidarity that's mm. so central to mm. social justice work, that it's so fundamental that we, we don't think about that as just uh, a state of being. You know, we always talk, we say solidarity isn't a noun, it's a verb. So it's a doing word. You gotta always be doing something in order to be in solidarity. You can't claim it uh, otherwise. So when I say that I'm in solidarity with my students, it means that we have to do some work together to break down uh, uh, as much as we can, as is feasible, some of those hierarchical borderings. Uh, so, so based on that alone, like I got about a dozen questions, but yeah. can we go back? What, what, what's an anti-oppressive framework? So an anti-oppressive framework would be one that's designed uh, with the knowledge that the world that we've inherited is a world full of hierarchies and a world full of uh, various types of intersectional oppression. So when we try and build a classroom in a way that uh, uh, is anti-oppression, we don't start from the kind of what I might say is like the liberal assumption that we're all equal people. Uh, it is perhaps true that philosophically we are all equal, 
but in practice, we don't come to the classroom in equal ways. I come to the classroom as a professor, so I'm, right. you know, like there's a natural hierarchy there. But even the students, they come and we work through in the early stages of this class, um, you know, various kinds of ways of thinking about the privileges or the mm. disadvantages. Right. And I really like to focus on the privileges and I talk about my own. I find it to be a little bit more uh, disarming when the students can see their professor talking about the ways in which they've been privileged in an unfair way. Uh, because oftentimes you try and talk about privilege in a classroom and it gets people's backs against the wall. You don't say I didn't work for what I had. Right, you know? right. Yeah. That sort of free market sense that I got out of bed at 7 a.m. every day for the last 23 years in order to, to be the person I am today. For sure. Yeah, I rolled up my sleeves. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 what's privilege for you? Is privilege financial? Is it is it education? Is it politics? What 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 does that sort of mean? Privilege is is all kinds of intersecting uh, variables. Uh, so, for for me now, I'm enjoying certainly class privilege in the last year and a half since I've become a professor, uh, which is something that I never had before. So, the ability to do certain things that that the possession of of you know having disposable income does. Uh, the biggest privilege that I talk about with my students that I have, I think, is being born as a cisgendered man uh, in a world that seems in many cases to be organized by structural patriarchy. Hmm. Uh, and it's always my starting point with the students. And I think it's in part because my research is so much about race and racism that folks probably think that I'm a one-trick pony talking about right. that stuff. But right. the, the best way in and kind of my own entryway into social justice work was through feminism. Hmm. And it was because it's through feminism and through understanding gender as a privilege um, that I, I began to understand myself as an oppressor as well. And I think, you know, for a lot of us who do social justice work, we want to think of ourselves always as on the good good side. Right, right, right. But when we think about good sides or bad sides, we're actually missing the most important thing, which is how is this thing structured? Right. So, you know, we got to focus on the structure, and it's that structure that privileges me as a as a able-bodied man uh, in ways that are unfair, but uh, part and parcel of, of, the, of the world in which the, we've inherited. How, how do you... How do you get out of bed every day with the hope that you're going to be or the desire to be anti-oppressive, knowing that you, mm. you know, you step into these cultures, you step in, you know, right. I mean, when you when you defined anti-oppression, it sounded like you just, you know, you defined every company I've ever worked for. Right. You know, right, right. it's corporate America, it's corporate Canada, it's the school system that I, I mean, even pedagogically, right? Pedagogically. The, you know, the way our students, uh, the kindergarten teachers, even from the ground up, yeah. you know, the way the rules are imposed and so mm. on. So it's it's deeply embedded. Right. How do we sort of, I mean, and that's part, I guess, of the academy, the university. Right, right. That's part of why we go to see film and have conversations mm, like this. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it? And, and do you have any insight for your students on how to sort of peel back those layers? I think the most important thing uh, is to understand that, you know, opposite the kind of old way of thinking about social science research or, or, or scientific research even, where... We imagine ourselves as being scientists who are separate from the objects of analysis, right? Like we can look into the test tube. We don't have a test tube and we don't have a lab when we're in the social world. We are part of the experiment. So being part of the experiment means that we need to learn to live and act in spite of all of the conditioning and all of the cues. Hmm. So it involves the challenge. And I actually think that this is part of why uh, it, it interests me, not just as an act at the level of the activist, but at the level of an intellectual, 
how do you convince yourself to go against the things that give you privilege? Mm. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah, because you're in the system. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Yeah, but it's easy for you to critique it because sure. you're in it. That's you right. are. You are privileged, that's right? right? That's the. That's a fair response, I suppose. But it's also, I think, a tiny bit cynical. But but mm. at the same time. You're in it, so how do you, you know, how do you peel how back you the layers back? And, yeah. and, and do it in a meaningful way without being, I don't know, uh, uh, sanctimonious or something? Of course. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, like one concrete way that we kind of looked at this uh, in the class was, you know, there's a class on international development activism. Uh, so, you know, in discussion with the students in the first month of class, we talked about all these different things that we might do as our sort of big project towards the end. And in the end, we put up a couple things to vote, and the students decided that what they wanted to do, whatever it is we decided to do, it should be working in solidarity with activists who are already engaged in socially just issues. And we spend a lot of time in the class first talking about where it is we are, which is unceded Mi'kma'ki, so hmm. you know, the, the traditional and ongoing homeland of the Mi'kmaq people. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we talk a lot about, you know, what does it mean to exist in this university that's on unceded territory and at the same time part of Canada? And, and these things, they seem like they're contradictory and yet they're happening at the same time. So what we tried to do in terms of kind of leveraging our privilege and using it in a supportive way was all of the right. funds, you know, like everything that we raised, it went towards the water protectors on the Shubenagadi River. And uh, the students, even at the last minute, decided that we would call off our rally. And uh, bec- that was because the water protectors were trying to bring people down to their uh, truck house uh, on that weekend in order to help build the structure. So in practicing the solidarity, we basically decided we're going to go down and actually physically lend our bodies and, and do the kind of labor that normally academics aren't expected to do. We, we sure. aren't stereotypically good at doing these things. Right, right. But right. We is, this, what is, it? is this a shovel or a broom? That's right, right. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Or oh, a yeah. hammer, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I think a big thing when you're you know, working as an academic, uh, people want to look to you to take on a leadership role in analysis or in theorizing this and that and the other. And it's important as academics engaged in anti-colonial research and activism that we understand that people are producing theory and, and, and liberation theories all over all the time. And our role in those struggles is not to lead. It's always to figure out how can we kind of get in and support the work that's already Sound, happening. Sounds a lot to me like you're building relationships. Absolutely. Like it's you're, build, you're, building, you're building community. You're... You're in the middle of it. Your sleeves truly are rolled up. And by the way, folks, they are rolled up. So that's it, it's working on all levels. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, is it, you know, because I would think, and, and maybe you haven't been a professor long enough yet, but have you certainly been in the, the academic world. Hmm. Do you get accused of being an intellectual? Do you get accused of being, right. oh, oh, you're just, yeah, easy for you because all you do is read books, right? Oh, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're an academic. I've, and recently... I've been labeled that uh-huh. in, a, in a pejorative tone. And you sure. just go, okay. I mean, right. I, I think I get why. But so do you mean by that critical or reflective, right? So mm. it's, anyway, just wondering what your experience is. I think that's a really good question, David. And uh, to that, I would say there is uh, there's a lot of different opinions about the role of an, of an academic. And uh, they're not all good. And there's a lot of good reasons <laughs> it's, it's, to be distressful. <laughs> it's true. I wonder, I wonder, and I want you to please keep going on that, but I, yeah. I can't help but wonder 
so I majored in philosophy, and so many people really how, how did you manage? Like, oh, I had I had a philosophy professor that was boom, 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 and and I think often that's isn't that what happens? You know, academia gets labeled it's dry, it's not interesting, it's not relational, right? It's right, not about right, building right, community. Right. Well, right? it's, it's too often about presenting the expert mm. to literally profess, right? Oppression. Yeah, 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 right, right, exactly. So in breaking down some of those barriers, like the way, like it doesn't bother me too much because when I hear that critique, for the most part, it, it's like water off a duck's back because it's like, I know who you're talking about and uh, I'm confident that I'm not that person. And I think in a way that's the privilege of being a young professor, like a new professor, because I, I've been... Uh, kind of almost on the opposite side of that critique a lot when you see these profs, these, these uh, profs who are invested in epistemic, I don't want to get too technical, but like all of the... Everyone needs to look, look up the word epistemic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their epistemic projects um, that are kind of never included racialized people, never included, you know, um, people outside of the mainstream. And uh, a lot of the work, the exciting work being done in the academy right now is about you know, pluralizing the way mm. that we think mm. about epistemology, about research, and we see what's happening. How we know. How we know. How we know. know what we know. How do we know what we know? And then even more into some of the stuff that I work on is uh, about ontology. And, you know, like, what are the starting assumptions that allow us to even build our knowledge right. systems? Because they're different. And right. that's really exciting. You know, when you start looking at, we think we understand the world. I remember one time uh, I was, I was uh, at a conference and... We were just out for coffee, and I had a friend who's a, a scholar, Olivia Rutazibwa, uh, originally a, from Rwanda. <laughs> and uh, she was getting tired trying to explain to some kind of very mainstream thinking guys, you know, uh, what we mean when we talk about pluriversality or what we mean when we talk about anti-colonialism. And she asked me, hey, can you explain this to these two guys? <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm washing the hands right? of this conversation. Yeah. So I turned over, you know, I had a sip of coffee and I was like, listen, guys, your world is not. Your world is not. Mm. The world that you think that you live in is nowhere near the, the entirety of that which exists. And, it, and sometimes, you know, like sometimes in teaching, sometimes in, uh, in learning, it's important to say less I've learned. Mm. Uh, I'm mm. still learning that. Mm. Yeah, lifetime for that, I think. But you leave people with a thought that, yep. that, you know, it can allow them to do work, the work that they need to do in order to figure things out. Do you find that uh, students are willing to do that work, that people, and, I, and I'm going to say students, I uh -huh. mean, you know, across the board. So you, the paid for students mm -hmm. are the ones who are paying to be there. Right. But, but, but the folks that we meet or, or, you know, are we really willing to go that deep? To, to look at some of these uh, things and these challenges. Because I wonder, one of the thoughts I had while you were just chatting right. uh, about, I mean, about all of this, frankly, is there a sense that you're willing to let any of those colonial oppressors away with the fact that, well, they just didn't know any better? Because mm. um, today, right. 21st century, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that quite often. Yes, right. Yes, right? Yeah, well, yeah. the product of their environment. You right. Know? But but change comes somewhere. Change comes happens somewhere. as right. The needle moves. But you know, one of the most I think one of the most critical questions I always try to ask my students, especially living as we do on Turtle Island or Canada, whatever you want to call it, um, is is name me that moment. Give me one date when colonialism ended. Mm. Mm. And it's right. fun to see what right. they come out, you know, like right. in India, however problematic yes. it might be, yes. we can say 1947. Yeah. yeah, I imagine the cutting of the ribbon to end colonialism. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's... 
Well, and especially when we look across this, these territories, we look at what's happening in the news right now. You know, the Kinder Morgan pipelines, the um, you know the recent El Sipagtog anti-fracking demonstrations in Mi'kma'ki, ongoing Alton Gas uh, anti-Alton Gas organizing. You know, the uh, Wet'suwet'en up in northern British Columbia. There's all these different sites where when you actually put it up, what's happening right now, and you compare that to hundreds of years ago, mm. it's the same thing, different different words, you know? Right. And I do that a lot in my research because I, I I'm researching Sri Lanka, and I'm looking at the 19th century, but I was driven to it because of an interest in human rights and right. civil war. Right. It was like they read the, the they read the books or something, and we're enacting the same kind of violence. So these things are. Like, it's interesting, you know. Uh, my my kids uh, are reading uh, the Hunger Games series right now, Great. yeah, and uh, they're pretty voracious readers. And um, so we're following. My my wife Elizabeth has this rule: you got to read the books before you see the movie. So we're good slowly. Rule. Yeah, it is a good rule. <laughs> so we're slowly working through. Uh, we may have to break the rule on the Lord of the Rings, though. Mm. Um, that we may have, you know, just because we won't, we won't be seeing those films for years to come. Yeah. But anyway, um, we we saw one of them recently, and and I actually paused the film and I said, guys, you, I, I don't want to go into into some sort of lesson here, but we're not too far away from some of what's going on right now, right in yes. front of us here. And I just and I was starting to see some parallels. I'd seen a recent doc. Uh, called the Silence of Others. I right. mentioned it to you earlier right. in, in conversation about about Franco and Spain and and and, and the oppression there uh-huh. and and the and the killing and uh-huh. the, and the and the, yeah. I mean, talk about a class struggle. Yeah. I mean, beyond class struggle squared. You know, and but but the parallels are there. You know, right? you Tolkien. I we spend uh, my partner and I spend a lot of time uh, looking at the Lord of the Rings mm, movies. Fun, and I have fun. to embarrassingly admit, as I was saying, you got to read it first. I haven't actually read the books yet. Oh, okay. But I really want to. She's read them all, of course. Uh, she's a literature person. But every year we watch all three of the Lord of the Rings movies, and we're always looking at like how Tolkien. Like it's interesting. You think about what Tolkien was trying to do politically. Yeah, sure. In yeah. the aftermath of the trench warfare of the First World War, and you see these different enactments, but it's exactly as you say, David. Like you know, the Ents. Look at the character of the Ents, and and we see this battle for the Earth, where the Earth is an agent. You know, the Earth mm. is actually taking mm. on material form and trying to push back against the sort of like forces of Mordor and the forces of. Uh, you know, no spoilers or anything. If there's anybody left who hasn't <laughs> seen these movies, left, but yeah, yeah. one of the most powerful scenes to me in that uh, f- set of films is when the Ents rip down uh, the industry and release the river. And release the river. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. it's so great. Life giving. Right? Life giving. And, and there's one tree, and I know it too because we're now we're both nerding out just yeah. for the record. <laughs> but there's this one of the trees is one of the Ents is on fire. Yes. And, yeah. the, and the water slow, and it, and I I can feel the cooling. Yes. What a, what, a, what a great metaphor. Oh, that's so much fun. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about your students. So, so are you hopeful? I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're teaching class on history, international development. Uh, you're looking at all these deep, serious issues. Mm. You know, um, is the future uh, to be found in your students? Are, you know, uh, and, and if you're hopeful, why? The, f- the <laughs> show future all is work. bright. The future oh, no, all no. work. Okay. Yeah, show yeah. all work, yeah. The future is bright. I mean, I really see this in, you know, like, so I started teaching and uh, I just gave a talk last week in Ottawa where I was asked to talk about the differences in the students mm. uh, from when I started. And, you know, I started teaching in university classrooms just in 2010. It's not that long ago. 
2018 now. And like that exercise I mentioned earlier, when was when did colonialism right, end? Right, right. So initially in 2010 in Ottawa, I would get so much pushback to that question. How could you even ask that question? That's like an offensive question. Blah, blah, blah. And then people would come up with lots of really great dates. 1982, repatriation of the Constitution. 96, the last residential school. But nowadays I find increasingly, and I've done a few talks in high schools too, on uh, decolonial political science and what that would mean. Uh, and students, like, it, they don't bat an eye anymore. They're like, oh, oh, we're still an ongoing colonial force. And students are so much more fluent mm. in social justice liter literature. They're so much more able to use and mobilize uh, technology to help them articulate their voices and they're audacious. You know, like a lot mm. of people, mm. I think, are often too dismayed by the so-called millennial generation. Yes. I yes. draw so much inspiration from these young people uh, because they get it at a much easier level, uh, it seems, than even like five, six years ago. And they, they're putting it into practice. Like a lot of my students, and you know, I, we incentivize it a little, right? So rather than having them write another term paper, you know, a right. social science degree, I have them write op-eds. And nice. I'm super strict about, you know, 750 words and I stop reading. Um, and then they get bonus points. They get a bonus point if they send it for publication. They get a high five and an extra bonus point if it's published. And I had three, four students publish really thoughtful, insightful That's pieces. This oh, good year, for you. you know? Yeah, good for you. I mean, way to way to root the theory in practice. Yeah, you got to do something in the world. Well, that's right? isn't that that's your definition of solidarity, right? We're that's back. Right. We're back to it's 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 an action. It's you got to be in motion. But the students, they come up with these magnificent ideas, and I see them struggling, and they're trying to pay their tuition, and tuition is going, it's out of control, you know, and. They're they're working they're working really hard and obviously not every student is the same but like the the, the generation of ideas mm. you know the excitement I see from my students especially the ones who are coming from different disciplines people who are coming from the sciences and they want to tap some of the best activists are the ones who are taking classes like this as electives and they're based in science and engineering isn't that interesting oh yeah yeah you wow. know we always think in the arts and the humanities that we're you know like. We've got the Che Guevara T-shirts. <laughs> We've got you know the Zapatista flags, yeah. but got the haircuts. The haircuts. We got the best haircuts. But uh, a lot of the science students, I've been really impressed with hmm. uh, you know like the the quality of the ideas that they're coming with and how the students gel in the classroom. Like you know they bring their different attributes to the fore. It's pretty. It's pretty interesting. So there is value in hard science. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, so talk to me. Uh, I want to tell a fun story too yeah. about the first time we, we we met or when we met, uh, not that long ago. But but before I do that, your course sounds great. It sounds like so much fun when I read through the course outline and and some of the readings and 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 so on. So political, so 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 relevant, mm -hmm. and so so many different layers, you know, and and levels of interest. But I got to ask you about the redemption songs. Tell, <laughs> tell, tell, tell me a little bit more about that 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 lecture, or is it even a sure. lecture? Did no, you just bring somebody in to, to play, or that was a really fun class. And when I first built that into the syllabus, it was just like personally, like even in my own writing and the way that I've made sense of a lot of really abstract theory. Bob Marley has been so essential to guiding me in the way that I think. I think of Bob Marley as one of my professors. Mm, and nice. uh, so what I did in that class was I, I wanted to take the opportunity to introduce students to the history of like music in protest. And we actually went through and we started with the Internationale, you know, talk, talking about the Paris Commune, talking about this idea, you know, because before... It's, it's oftentimes the case that 
people want to stop uh, progressives from imagining better futures on the basis of, well, that's not practical. This mm, isn't practical. Right. If you look at the 19th century and you had these trade, the, this, the rise of these trade union consciousness where people were trying to articulate a different kind of cosmopolitanism, a different kind of internationalism, and you start there and, yeah, it was full of problems, but they, they, they tried anyway. And you look at the whole history of protest music. Now, that's something that a lot of people do, right? But I wanted to show them some that uh, we have to think about that in more intersectional ways. So we looked at, rather than, you know, at the Dylan and, the, you know, all this stuff that's really great, and I love it, but I wanted to show them, think more critically about this roots rock reggae stuff. You know, Marley and reggae music has an awful lot more to offer than the way that it's generally portrayed, mm, especially on mm, university campuses. Mm, right. You know, uh, it's much more about marijuana than marijuana. And when you look at what... But it's also a good hook for a lot of students, sure, right? Sure, sure, But if you look at what they're saying, look at how they're putting it together, listen to the rhythms and the songs. We particularly went into a close reading of the album Survival, uh, which is probably my favorite album of all times. And, you know, we, we discussed and looked at music videos by female reggae mm, artists like cool. Queen Africa. And the whole point was, like, let's, let's basically think about a mixtape to the revolution and, and why, why music is so Fun. important to imagining better futures. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of that, uh, the John Cusack. As soon as you said mixtape, yeah. I thought of the John Cusack film. Um, oh, that's ridiculous. Hi, uh, do, you, do you know the film I'm talking about? Is it High Fidelity? Like oh, that's that. ridiculous. A friend of mine would be so embarrassed. <laughs> we won't tell him. There's, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's just such a, it's all about the mixtape. I oh, mean, it's, great, it's about great. way more than that, but yeah. the mixtape comes up. Uh, did you make mixtapes? Yeah. I, I, I made did. loads of yeah, mixtapes. Yeah, in fact, I probably still have some. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough uh, to say that I've got a few. I'm a bit of a nerd uh, on some levels. So, uh, yeah. of course, Elizabeth and my kids are all laughing out loud right now. Um, <laughs> so, so, redemption songs, um, what, what, is, what does it mean to be? You know, I'm working in the in the realm of public engagement right now. Mm. I'm working alongside of people who are working on the Hill in Ottawa, advocacy uh, folk, and 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 we're trying to make a difference. We're trying yeah. to move the needle. We're 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 looking for impressions. We're looking mm. for social media uh, influencers, and we're we're working alongside PR that are writing you know some of those op eds that you were just sure, talking about. Sure. And and there's a part of me that sometimes just kind of wonders, wow, it's just a big black digital hole. Sure, like what. Is it really getting through? Is it really making a difference? Is it, it does it really matter, or is right. it just another tweet? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like you have a few. Twitter is something that is very easily weaponized. You know, we well, see it funny, <laughs> and not just you know the Russia stuff too, but yeah, we see yeah. so much pushback by these. Uh, you know these these alleged defenders of free speech, or uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't give them that actual title, uh, but like folks who want to like use Twitter to dox people and use Twitter to post all this personal information about people who they disagree with, you know. So we definitely see how social media can be used as a blunt tool and as also as a strategic kind of scalpel. Uh, I think that ultimately the message that you're trying to get across uh, will, will determine the platform that's best used for it. So for example, I use, I use Facebook a lot as a, as a way of um, kind of like doing public education. Mm -hmm. I make my posts, 95% of them are all public. And inevitably people are gonna like jump in there with their like particularly weird stuff. 
I also took a, I, I made a decision several years ago that I wasn't going to debate anybody in private messages. Uh, if we're going to have a public debate, we're going to do it in the public where everybody can see who you are. Right. You know, right. and then you get away from some of, some of that like absurdist sort of things. Well, uh, and just the knee-jerk reactions, and the, yeah, I mean, talk about talk about no context. Seriously, right? Yeah, when you're in the middle context. of a textual debate with somebody on on, on a device, it's it's, just, it's so many things can be taken the wrong way. It's but I think the really important thing for for folks who want to make social change is to remember that when we have those in debates, when we choose to engage in those debates, we're not doing it to to really debate. The person on the other side we're doing it as public education you know mm, so it's mm-hmm. all the people who are reading it and not saying anything you know or maybe they say something but maybe like and, and that's something i've learned i think over like seven or eight years being on social media is that it's actually not about what seems like it's it's only it's it's about the fight here but it's not about winning that fight it's about using that to allow the sort of like regressive thinking people to become the sort of tools of their own uh, undoing because they, their ignorance speaks volumes. And so, so for you, then, is social media kind of a, a tool, a, catal- a catalyst for the peeling back of the layers? Is that, is that kind of what you I mean? I think so, but it's, there's nothing special about social media, to my mind. Uh, and I mean it from, a, from an activist perspective as well. Oh, yeah, because right? yeah. from an activist perspective, it's absolutely essential. We need it because, you know, like simple things like, like putting up a camera. Like I was at a rally uh, when two and a half weeks ago was an unwelcoming party for BP because mm. BP wants to start drilling off the coast mm. in Nova Scotia and Mi'kma'ki. And um, the social media was essential to keeping activists safe because when we entered into this building where presumably, I guess, we were not want- welcomed. Or no, wanted, probably not. Probably not. And they were closing off the elevators and they closed off the, um, the stairwells and stuff. We needed those cameras on so that things, if things went sideways, like there was a record of what was happening. And then also in terms of delivering the message, you know, like the, when the police came to issue the trespassing warning and this and that, uh, I, I was able to witness the Mi'kmaq women immediately start drumming and playing their warrior song. And what that did was it filled that space hmm. with Mi'kmaq drumming That's pretty cool. and music and all the workers in this massive building faces pressed against the the glass. And it did not matter at all that we weren't able to deliver that message in person to BP. That message was delivered to every worker in that Mm. building and then broadcasted live on Facebook and all these other places. And we know Facebook is full of problems and all the other, you know, like it's not, I'm not trying to venerate Facebook Mm -hmm. or Twitter Mm -hmm. or any Mm -hmm. other platforms. We have to just think about strategically what any given platform enables us to do. But it always comes down to the politics of the message. If your politics isn't right, it doesn't matter how you disseminate it. I love, I mean, that, it, that, that's a redemption song, isn't it? In, yeah. I mean, talk about a redemption song in practice. The Mi'kmaq Warrior song is a redemption song, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a remarkable story. I, I love it. So, so what will you do in next year's class that you didn't do this year? What a wonderful question. Yeah, I mean, I'm or is just, it too early to tell? <laughs> it's slightly too early because I'm still doing my grading uh, for right. it. But I think uh, I'm going to continue building the relations yeah. that we started building. Yeah, you know? so good. And I'm going to take the lead from my students who said we need to engage uh, the the good work that's already underway. And, Which is great because now you're coming alongside. Absolutely, right. You're building somebody else up as well. You're not. You know, you're, you're, the world doesn't probably need another. Mm. another NGO you're right right yeah. Uh, or or yeah anyway. you know let me give you one good example yeah, of, good. of what you're talking about there so 
the day that we decided that as a class that we were going to go down to the treaty truck house, you know, again, we post this stuff on social media. We've got no secrets. Uh, obviously, the company, I think, didn't didn't think too highly of that. And uh, we learned the morning off when my students were getting ready to get on the bus to go down on us. It was a cold, cold Sunday morning. And the folks down in the water protectors called us and said, listen, you know, the company here is here and RCMP is here and there's like seven or eight different security guards and things are looking edgy. So you, if you're coming, you need to understand what you might be coming into. Yeah, you, you, you might be going to jail. Yeah, potentially. It's, a, it's at least a possibility, it's a possibility right? Possibility. Yeah. So I pulled everybody off the bus and all the students and we just like huddled outside uh, the student union building. And I said, listen, folks, here's the situation coming from the camp. As far as I'm concerned, as your professor, the fact that you turned up this far, you have 100% fulfilled your contractual obligation to this class. You don't have to go any further. If you choose to go any further, you know, we go as individuals acting in the principles of our solidarity. Sure, sure, sure. And no judgments, you know. And, you know, some people didn't come, but the overwhelming majority of them came. 30, 40 people came. That's and amazing. The reason why that's so important is because when we rolled up, uh, there was they were outmanned, you know, um, uh, by the security forces who were picking on, on the Mi'kmaq water protectors. And just <laughs> think of the irony here. <laughs> Of the company accusing them of trespassing on Mi'kmaq. Mm, mm. So that's what was happening. And then we roll in with 30, 40 young people from the city to stand with them. And it meant something. Like yeah. That was yeah, that was something sure. meaningful. And, and, and the, the elders who were at the camp that day asked me specifically, go back and tell your students that we appreciated that. And to me, the, the, what they learned there, they got like an immersion in grassroots activism mm. that I could not have reproduced in the classroom. How, how, yeah, you can't, you can't pay for that kind of uh, a lecture. They're, no. they're, that lecture doesn't exist. And my hope is that now they're going to ignore the end of the class and they're going to continue going out to these events and, and, and being engaged. And I know that many of them it's are. It's such a great argument for, for, for relationship, for face-to-face, -face, yeah. for, for being present, for solidarity. Totally. Being yeah. present really yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, in the no, that's amazing. Uh, Ajay, thanks for your time today. I, I, I wish this was a two-hour podcast. Um, and we're going to have to have you back for, for, for part two. Awesome. Uh, Professor Ajay Parasram from uh, University of uh, Dalhousie, uh, in International Development Department and History Department, assistant professor there. Ajay, it's yeah, a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks so much, David. Pleasure as well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.